In the world of startups, Elad Gill has done it all. He's been an executive, entrepreneur, investor, or advisor for so many successful companies. Airbnb, Gusto, Stripe, Square, Google, and Twitter, just to name a few. Today, he's the co-founder of Color Genomics and describes himself as a startup helper. We couldn't agree more. In a conversation with the entire Latitude team, Elad talked about the current state of startups, headcount, and budget adjustments, access to investment, and how he chooses where to focus his time and energy. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Elad, welcome. It's so great to have this chat with you. Where, Brian, are, you, where, are, you, yeah. where are you connecting from? Uh, I'm in the Bay Area. I think I'm the only person who stayed here during COVID, according to Twitter. So, I've been Hey, the Bay Area is back. The Bay Area is back. That's, 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 what I'm, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing. So, well, good. Thank, thanks so much for making the time. Uh, it's a real pleasure. You know, you've been someone that's, you know, really focused on creating value for other people. So for you making time and, and chatting with this group, just so you know, like this is a mix of mostly operators, founders, um, you know, people that are building uh, the next generation of LATAM, a lot of investors that are writing angel checks. Uh, some have written more checks than others, but it's really a strong community that we're trying to build here uh, at Latitude. So thank you for making the time. Oh, yeah, no, thanks so much for including me. Obviously, there's, um, it sounds like an enormous amount to do, um, uh, you know, in LATAM, uh, as well as in the US, obviously, in terms of just technology, innovation and development. So it's very exciting. So then what we're going to do is we're going to have a quick chat and I'm going to you know ask you a handful of questions just to kind of get the conversation going. But I think more interestingly for everyone else is to get everyone's questions answered. And so some people already compiled a few questions and then we'll just kind of freestyle from there and, and see where we go. You know, I want to, you know, you, you, there's a ton of things that we can unpack on, you know, in your book. And, and I'm sure some people have some questions on, you know, some of the best practices out there that you've seen. You know, out of the gates, I just I'm just curious to hear from you. You know, you've had roles in you know at Google and you know Twitter and, and other places. How practical of the applications of the learnings you've had at those companies do you feel are relevant for early stage companies? Um, you know, I think that that's one thing that you know we're, we're I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear from you about. Um, given that you have such a large company and then going to a small startup, sure. what are the practical applications that you think are are yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've started two companies myself. Um, and so I've, I've worked as a founder directly uh, in two instances. I don't know why I did it the second time. It's so hard even just doing it once. Um, and, uh, you know, fundamentally, I think there's a lot of things that are in common and there's things that are radically different, right? In both cases, you're trying to build something that a lot of people would like to use. Um, but you, uh, in the case of a startup, you have no distribution. You don't have any support to hire. You know, so you have to figure out how to hire people from scratch without a brand or without a background or something that people aspire to join. Um, you have to get first customers when nobody's heard of you. Um, so it's it's obviously dramatically harder to start a company than to start a a product at a Google or a Twitter or one of the bigger the bigger platforms for sure. Um, but the the flip side of it is their commonalities in terms of you're trying to build things that people love and you're trying to distribute it to people, and hopefully you make money along the way. <laughs> so I think I think there's overlap, obviously, but obviously they're very different types of things. Yeah. On the other hand, you've you've seen you know uh, you know have you seen any mistakes in these big tech companies that a startup founder should avoid? You know, speaking more about product management. Oh, I mean, they they run so differently, right? Fundamentally, if you think about it, um, if you're a five person team at a startup uh, or a five person startup, I should say, right? Because most startups, it's like one or two founders, maybe it's three founders, 
usually if you have more than three founders, it starts to become a disaster, right? So in general, like one, one piece of unsolicited advice is don't have too many co-founders. You know, sometimes you see these companies with like seven co-founders and then within a year, six of them leave, you know? Um, and maybe the one counter example to that is, um, I think it was Alibaba or something, right? Had like 17 co-founders. Um, but what was really meant to be a co-founder, I think probably differed a lot. I think there was, um, you know, Jack Ma and then everybody else kind of was sort of the founding team or there's one or two other people who were real founders. Um, but in reality, you, you usually start with a very small team. You add a few engineers, maybe you add a chief of staff type, who I think is very valuable to add, you know, somebody else just go and, um, fill the gaps in terms of either getting an office space or, you know, I gen generally encourage people in your first five or six hires to bring on somebody like that, if you have the, the money to, um, and then you just start building something and you try to get customers and hopefully some, some customers start using your product and it just kind of rolls from there. Right. And then you have all sorts of challenges around hiring executives or, um, building a second product or internationalizing or whatever, maybe that's radically different than being at a big company, right? If you join a big company and you're a product manager, maybe from day one, you're working with 20 engineers. And there's already a set way of doing things. And there's a set of approvals you have to go through for everything. And you have to coordinate with 30 functions. And so your job becomes less one of building things and more one of coordinating with others or other teams, other groups, other functions. What does legal think? What does marketing think? What do all these people think? That's a very, very different type of role. It's almost more like being a bureaucrat than being a, a product developer. And if it's done well, and if the company gives you the space, you can be a product developer. Um, but as these companies get older and order, older, um, a lot of process starts to accumulate the type of people that you hire shifts. You start getting very risk averse people. You start getting people who are there just for the cash and just every, you know, they leave at three to go, go watch their kids or go to their hobby or whatever. Um, and so you just, you, you have a very different culture, usually in a very different stage of career for people and different mindsets. So I just think it's radically different. Do you think, you know, I've got a handful of other questions that I'm going to, you know, defer to the, the group here and we'll, we'll kind of dive a little deeper. These are some more general, broader questions and then we'll get more into angel investing sure. specifically. And, and I should say, by the way, those are those companies today. I think um, when I joined them, you know, Google went from 1,500 people to 15,000 people in three and a half years. And it's now about, it's almost 200,000 people, right? So it's it's massively larger now, but, you know, when it's 1,500 people, it was still pretty nimble. At 15,000, it really was starting to slow down. When I joined Twitter, it was 90 people. And we helped grow it to 2,500 people over two and a half years or three years. And then it shrank and then it grew to 8,000, right? Until Elon Musk took over and now it's back to 2,000. And probably the right size for it is about 2,000. If you look at the complexity of the product and what they're doing and the, you know, the, the, the type of commercial go-to-market that they have. Um, but we have been through a period of massive overhiring and tech and both big companies, well, startups. And so... You know, yeah, that was that was actually my next question. You 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 jumped to it on this this overhiring. Uh, you know, I mean, clearly, you know, the, the big tech. You also think the small tech companies, just excess capital. What yeah. happened? You know, is it pre-product market fit overhiring? And then, you know, what, what where do you think the on the specifically on that segment of early stage? Where do you think the where do you think we went wrong? And and what was the biggest mistakes you you saw commonly? Yeah, I think in general, um, people raised a lot of money um, over the last two, three years. And basically what happened is people got one or two, like what I'd call free rounds, where they didn't really have any progress, but they got their their Series B and their Series C without doing much, you know, because people just showed up with money. And what, what used to be, and by used to, I mean, before COVID, I don't mean, you know, 30 years ago or something, but what used to be is that... Um, a company would raise around every 12 to 18 months and that'd be considered good. 
you know, so if you're on a 12 to 18 month cycle, it meant that every 12 to 18 months, you had the next step up and and what you've done and created. And so you'd get a higher valuation that was two to three times higher than the prior round. And so if you'd raise a pre-seed, maybe that's the fastest one. Six to nine months later, you do a seed. And then a year later, you do an A. And then 12 to 18 months later, you do a B. And then 12 to 18 months, you know, et cetera. And during COVID, these cycles collapsed. And some people would raise this, the pre-seed and the seed at the same time, just depending on how much they liked an investor, they put them in one or the other. And then they'd raise an A three to six months later. And then they get preempted into a B three to six months later. And then maybe they'd even do a C, right? And so suddenly you had five rounds or four rounds of fundraising in 12 to 18 months instead of four or five years, right? And so you were overloaded with capital. And a bunch of people fooled themselves. And by people, I mean the investors who backed it and the founders who were driving these companies, they fooled themselves into thinking, because I got this round, it means I've hit a certain level of progress. And therefore, let me hire more people. And so you ended up with these companies with, you know, I think the most famous example is, um, was a company called Fast that grew to about 500 people and then, um, you know, uh, just shut down. And I, the rumor or the, the press said that they had like less than a million in revenue right? With 500 people. And so, you know, a lot of startups ended up overhiring. Um, big tech really overhired, right? So you look at Facebook, it went from 44,000 to 88,000 people in two years. And then when they laid off 11,000 people recently, that put them back to February, March of the year. They, you know, they, they just shrunk six months worth of growth. That's nothing, right? And so you see that and you're like, okay, all these things are bloated. You know, uh, Google, same thing. They went from 110 to 190,000 people in two years. What were those eighty thousand people incrementally doing? It's a little bit unclear, right? So I think, um, I think it's, uh, I think there's just been a period where there's really available capital. Everybody reacted to it, and now people are partially dealing with it. But I think most companies aren't going far enough on it. And I think in the next um, twelve to eighteen months, we'll see a really big shift for the smaller companies. I'm not, I, I don't know what will happen with the bigger companies because their business models are so good. That they can afford to have all these people, whether they need them or not. Yeah, they're they're it's gonna be interesting to see. I mean, if you're if you're printing money, you know, then then you can sustain. But if you're, you know, if you're struggling to kind of generate revenue, yeah, you're gonna be in a um <laughs> Matteo asked, what were those people doing? Uh vesting and resting, maybe. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of large tech companies are um, you know, you look at it, there's probably 10% of people who are killing themselves, just working really hard, right? And then there's probably, you know, 20, 30%, 40%, whatever the numbers who are working at like a good pace, you know, not startup pace, but they're doing stuff and getting things done. And there's probably like 50 to 70% of people who aren't doing very much. And this is basically universal basic income, right? It's a way to support people who graduated from top schools uh, without them having to work is what it feels like. It feels like a safety net for people who went to Harvard or something. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Well, listen. I want to I want to dive in a, more specifically on on some kind of founder related, you know, investor. You know, we've got a handful of folks here that are, you know, some that have done, you know, a handful of checks. Others that are earlier in their kind of investing uh, phase. But you know, there's always that big debate about you know the the market size over kind of founder quality. You know, sure. you know, what, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think. Um... You know, I've seen uh, many incredible teams get absolutely crushed by a bad bad market. And so it depends on how you define founder quality. Is founder quality the ability to find something interesting that people want? Or is it to run a company well? 
because I've seen people who run things extremely well just die in bad markets, right? Their companies just die. And similarly, I've seen people who run things very poorly, but who somehow find product market fit. They build a product that people actually want, whether by mistake or on purpose. And then their companies do very well. And the magical moments are when you have somebody who can run things very well, married to a, a great market. You know, they actually stumble or purposefully build in a great area. And then they have the ability or wherewithal to continue to scale up the company from that point on. And that's when you have a, a Google or that's when you have a Stripe or that's when you have one of these sort of generational companies. Um, but most of the time you don't, right? And, um, you know, the the kind of framework that I sometimes use is you kind of, every company effectively, um, if, you look, if you use Apple as an analogy, right? Apple had Steve Wozniak who could build anything, Steve Jobs who could sell anything. And then eventually they added Tim Cook who could really run anything, right? And over the life of a company, you need those three types of people. And on a founding team, you need the first two. You need somebody who's very good at sales. And by sales, that could mean um, convincing customers to use your product, but it could also mean convincing employees to join or convincing investors to give you money, right? It's all a form of sales. And then you need people who can actually build something, right? And then later, as the company starts working, you really need somebody who can run things better to fill out the team. And that's when you start hiring professional executives. Um, and so usually I think you kind of need that, that combination. But again, if you don't find product market fit, it doesn't matter how good those people are. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need anyone optimizing something that hasn't you know, been proven. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. It says, can you share a bit of your framework to identify great startups like the you know many unicorns you've invested in? Do you use any pattern matching? Maybe just give us a, a general view of sure. you know kind of your 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 system. Yeah, I think there's lots of different signals in terms of whether um, a very early over time. So um, one example is, is somebody building something that they've built multiple times at various companies. So for example, when I invested in PagerDuty, you know, 12 years ago or whenever it was, it's been a long time now. Um, I invested because the team there um, had built the product like once or twice before for internal use. And then they said, hey, we'll just build this for everyone. Right. And so it's kind of one of those things where you just build, build it repeatedly. You know, people want it. Because you yourself needed to do it. And so, um, you know, uh, it takes off. There's other examples where you just know something's very broken. It's a large industry. There aren't good alternatives. And so that would be, you know, Gusto or Rippling in the HR market where um, it's kind of clear there's very bad solutions. There's ADP, paychecks are awful to use. Anybody who used them as a startup person at least hated them. And so there's an opportunity. And so sometimes it's more anecdotal. You know, you kind of you see that the market is important. Uh, and then sometimes things just kind of um, show up out of the blue and they either, uh, you know, a lot of really smart people are attracted to them and that's often a market sign, not always, right? Um, but suddenly a bunch of really smart engineers are working on crypto, maybe there's something there. Or a bunch of really smart people are working on generative AI, maybe there's something there. And there's false versions of that too, right? A bunch of people went and worked on IoT or the first wave of clean tech and nothing happened out of it. But sometimes that's a signal. Uh, and then the last thing is just like, what's the growth rate and how rapidly does the company get adoption if it's launched, right? And so um, if things are launched, there's actual data. I was talking about examples where they weren't launched, right? I invested in Gusto and Rippling when they were just ideas. 
or, you know, um, there's a bunch of other things that I notion, just one person, you know, there, it was ideas. And so, um, so sometimes you just have to extrapolate from the idea and call customers to do other things. But if it's launched, you have data and you can start to ask what's the, re- what's the, what's the retention in the short run and how many people are starting to use it, even if it's very early and, you know, if it's broken or people still trying to use it, that's usually a very good sign. On the first one you'd mentioned, is that something you really look at? Like, okay, these people are working in this larger company. They're, they have like tons of experience. Like, is that something you like seek out and, and like try to find people specifically in those kind of, you know, four buckets that you'd mentioned? Is that like, it used to be a good thing to do. Um, you know, that's been reasonably saturated as an area now where, you know, a lot of, at least the easiest things along those lines have been done. And, you know, sometimes there's the hard versions of that. There's some piece of internal infrastructure that's being used at Meta or whatever. And so can you provide that for the rest of the world? And sometimes that works very well. And sometimes the use case is just too specialized to very large companies. And there really aren't that many, you know, uh, companies that are massive in terms of, for example, data infrastructure scale or something, right? Everybody claims they are, but, um, you know, not at the same scale of like a Meta or Google or something. So it kind of also depends on what scale you're dealing with relative to the, the tool that's being built, for example. That makes sense. Um, go ahead and I've got tons of questions here, but if anyone else wants to to, to pop in, um, you know, I, I just thinking here about the, uh, you know, the idea of these, you know, like how applicable that is to Latin America in terms of, you know, finding a problem specifically that, you know, is in a larger, larger company and, you know, a larger universe. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the first wave of Latin American companies was very like copycat, you know, the US. And then, you know, there's kind of a now it's it's very clear there's like real local problems that need to be solved that um so it's it kind of interesting to think about that um i would love to open up for some other questions too felipe why don't you come up and ask elad your question if you would hi guys it's two questions in one so essentially is how do you think elad about um sort of the latest uh hype trends that end up happening and uh you know how how do you see that investing because well, usually we want to invest in something that will survive, right? That other investors are also find compelling. But I don't know, you want to invest in something that's not saturated, not super competitive. So what's what's your take in, on that? Yeah, I think there's almost, um, I'll give you conflicting views on that, right? That are absolutely opposing each other. Um, I think sometimes there's markets that are either very early um I'll give you I'll give you two examples of when it's good to go into a credit market and then some examples of when it's bad to go into a credit market. And if you look at the history of technology, many of the biggest companies were ones that entered late. Not always, right? There's some that were first to market, but Google was like the 10th search engine and Facebook was, you know, the, the 10th social network and you kind of go through it. And there's some things where, um, you know, it, it, it feels like a very crowded market, but it turns out there's just nobody who's good enough yet, or they're, they're making mistakes on the business model or the approach, or MySpace starts monetizing with too much ads or whatever it is. Um, so sometimes these markets um, look very saturated and they're not. And that could also be like, there's an old school incumbent and you think the incumbent is, you know, dominating the industry, but in reality, everybody hates it and it's slow moving and you can build something much better with modern technology. Um, on, on the other side of it, um, you know, sometimes you enter a market and there's so little differentiation and you're just not uh, that interesting relative to the others and you end up not succeeding, right? And so there's lots and lots and lots of people who ended up building no-code or low-code things for spreadsheets after Airtable and after Notion and they just didn't go anywhere because I think they weren't that dramatically better or different. And so it kind of depends on who your competitors is, um, are their network effects or not in the business and things like that. 
I do think that too many founders are, um, including myself, right? You know, I've started two companies, so I, I put myself in that bucket, um, uh, are too prideful about what they do. And sometimes a quick, fast follow actually makes a ton of sense. It doesn't often, but sometimes, right? <laughs> and so it feels like Brex and um, Ramp, Ramp, it seems like, was later into the market than Brex, but ended up doing just fine, right? Um, and in part, that's just because it's such a big market segment. Um, I remember when I backed Stripe, a lot of people, this was in 2010 or something, a lot of people um, said payments was too saturated. And how is this different? And how is this interesting? And there's Braintree and, you know, Amazon had a payment service and all these other things. And so why is it interesting, right? And so, and that was a case where, again, it felt saturated, but you did something that was dramatically better. And so it worked. But most of the time you start a payments company and it doesn't work, right? There's two dozen payments company that started in the five years after Stripe that didn't work. Gabrielle, it looks like your question was upvoted. Uh, if you could come ask your question, that'd be great. Sure, Brian. Hey, Ila, thanks for, uh, for taking time for us tonight. So I think it was basically covered already slightly, but which dimensions are most important to you when you assess a deal? And combined to that, what puts you off when you look at a deck or you talk to a founder? Yeah, I think... Um you know, early is very different from late. Late stage investing, I feel, is much easier because it's just, it's metrics, you know, there's certain core metrics you look at, and then there's some TAM, how big is the market? And then there's some defensibility, is there a mode or not? And then what's the competition? And you kind of, you can triangulate pretty um, readily. For early stage, um, I think the way I differ from a lot of people who get involved with early stage companies is that I focus a lot more early on the market than the team. And obviously the team is incredibly important, right? Like I, again, I started two companies. So if I, you know, I, I know how important the people are, but in a bad market or bad product market, these great people get destroyed. Right. And so I try to verify, is it a good area to actually build in? Are there customers who want this? Um, are there 20 alternatives and does it actually make sense to offer something? And then if the market and product seem okay, then I'll look at the team. And every once in a while, I'll make an exception to this, right? I'll invest in somebody because I think they're really smart or good. But usually, I want to look at the product and market first. And then after that, it's the team. And then on the team side, it's um, this this sort of, is there is there somebody who can sell something and somebody who can build something? And it's usually the same person. And sometimes there isn't, and it's okay because it's a developer-centric product that's product-led growth, and it'll grow anyhow if it's good enough, right? Um, are the people, do they learn rapidly? Do they know when to listen and when to ignore? Because um, you, you'll get all sorts of advice and often the advice will be wrong, right? So you need to know when to ignore people <laughs> who give you advice, but sometimes they're right too. And so do you at least have some logic behind why you choose one or the other, whether it's correct or not? Um, are they growing at a good pace? You know, you meet them two months later and they've advanced in terms of how they think about the world. Have they made themselves experts in the area that they're working on? Or are they very shallow in their understanding of things? Um, so it's a bunch of stuff like that. I do like reference checks and stuff, you know, like, um, quick follow up on that. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, mostly early stage investors oftentimes focus on the, on the person more than the, the market. That's talk about. Yeah. It's, that's like, I mean, if you were to ask that to a hundred, you know, and here you are saying that the market yeah. is more important. One yeah, people would say it's, it's the team, right. For early stage. Yeah, that's that's like the the conventional wisdom is like, oh, the team is the most important thing, right? Like you ask any C and they'll they'll always say the team. And sure. well, one you know question on the market is that 
given that you're investing in such an array of different topics, like how do you become so dominant about the understand, you know, dominate the the, the topics so well where you can spar with the founder uh, to the degree that gives you, I mean, yeah. you're, you're, you're probably smarter than I am, but that seems really hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I by no means ever would claim that I know more than a founder would in terms of an area they're working in, because if you're living and breathing it every day, you're going to know dramatically more than I ever will, right? And there are products that I've started myself that I live, I lived in, and breathed every day, right? And so there are some areas where I have some domain expertise, but a lot that I don't. Um, I think the key thing is that, um, number one, can you talk to customers? And so you can actually see, like, do people actually care about what they're doing? You can see it in metrics sometimes. Again, is it, if it's launched, you can see it in the data sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. Um, and so you can kind of extrapolate. Or again, if you've, if you've personally had experiences or you know people have had experiences where they really need something, then it's, sometimes it's very clear. And that's the easy stuff. The hard stuff is when it's the you know, software for managing the oil rig in the middle of you know, a pipeline. And then how do you diligence that? And the only way to do that is you either call customers or you realize you're ignorant and you don't do it. But I think saying, wow, this founder is so smart. I better back them in this oil rig software company. That sounds kind of bad to me, right? Like that doesn't seem like a very good idea. And you often see that the people who um, claim that they only invest based on the founders uh, do very large numbers of investments because they're basically... um, increasing the surface area of potential success, right? They're saying, if I have one, two hundred X and I invest in a hundred people, then it's fine if 99 of them fail. And it's just a different style of investing. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a different style, right? And so my style is to say, hey, I want to understand it. And if I don't understand it, it's fine if I miss it. Or alternatively, maybe I'll understand it when they raise a series A or do something else, right? Um, uh, But... um, you know, I'd rather not be super ignorant about the things I get involved with. And again, I won't know everything and I won't know as much as the founders, but, um, you know, at least there's some things that you can, you can pick up. So on the portfolio construction side, you know, what is the volume of investments that you think makes sense in order to kind of, you know, do you think about portfolio construction when you think about this and, and how would you advise everyone listening, you know, in terms of, you know, there's obviously everyone's read the power law, you know, kind of, you know, paper by angel lists and things like that, but What's your take on that in terms of you know making sure that you're you know, yeah it depends on whether you're running a fund or whether you're an individual angel. If you're an individual angel, um, you know it depends on whether you're investing only early or if you only invest late, right? Some people are um, operators at scale will also invest late, or some people just invest late either way. If you're only investing early, you need a big enough portfolio that the outlier will help dominate because otherwise you'll lose all your money. For most people, every once in a while you come across somebody. And they've made six investments and four of them are great, right? Um, but most of the time, people will make you know 10 to 20 investments before they hit something that works, that works very well. And by the way, I should say that's pre-COVID data. During, uh, and even before COVID, 2018, 2019, there was so much money flushing around. The companies kept going when they should have died or exited. And so you, everything kept going for much, much longer than it should have. All these things survived that shouldn't have survived. Um, and so you didn't have any startup deaths and so portfolios all look great, right? But we're going to see all these deaths coming now in the next 12 to 18 months because everything that was backlogged is going to go, right? Because <laughs> they won't be able to raise more money. And we'll see lots and lots and lots of exits in M&A um, over the next 12 to 18 months. So, um, you know, usually the advice is do 10 to 20 investments, roughly do them the same check size. 
And um, hopefully you'll hit at least one or two things that work really well. So they, they more than cover up all the failures that will undoubtedly exist in a normal portfolio. Best way, it's a little bit different. But I think everyone here is more kind of on the early stage investing side. Um, you know, how do you, if you were to say like where you add the most value to founders, like, or if you, you know, if you were to guess what the founders say about you, what would they, what would they say? Um, you know, I think the reality is that the bar for helpfulness um, as an investor is um, sadly very low. So sometimes founders will tell me, um, you know, you're you're our best investor, our most helpful investor, and I'll say that's awful. You know, how how could that be a how's that a positive sign on the state of the world? Um, yeah, you know, I think that the reality is, um, if I were to graph out startup help needed over time, right, or by stage. Early on, it's very spiky. It's like, hey, help us hire somebody and close them. Or, hey, we're firing somebody for the first time. We don't know what to do. How do we do it? Or we're raising around. Can you give us advice on it? And so you end up with these intense bursts of help, but it's not like you talk to them every day, right? The people who claim that they call companies they're involved with every single day, like the same companies, they must be nagging those poor founders, right? Like I, when I was running companies, I would hate it if, a, if, a, if an investor kept calling me, you know, when I didn't want them to. Um, and then uh, eventually the company starts working and everything starts breaking because you don't have an internal team usually to take care of it. And you need to hire executives. And that's when you need a lot of external help. And then eventually you hit a point where you hire in the really good executives and everything calms back down and the, the help you need is spiky again. So I think there's kind of that life cycle to help in a, in a, uh, from investors or from external parties in general. Yeah, it's a sad state of affairs when like your your value add because you don't annoy the founder or like cause trouble for the founder. That's yeah, yeah. and I think I think um, there's ways to be very helpful. Like um, I used to, for example, uh, and I still do this periodically, um, meet with the heads of corp devs of various companies so that if a startup that I was involved with ever wanted to exit, I'd know who to call and I could call ten people to help them. Right? Or who are the sources of follow-on capital for the market that you invest in, and can you get to know those people and send them? Companies over time, so that when you send them a company, they jump on it and they're responsive and they help whoever you're helping, right? And so you can build out these networks of support where you don't have to be the expert in everything, but you can have people around you who can help companies with all sorts of things. And if you do that, the companies will be very happy with your help, right? Because you're actually doing stuff. And so you can make a list of like, what are the four or five things that that companies always need help with? And then who can I who can I provide them with, you know? Just yeah, because the, who can I refer them to? You know, the good news is that since the bar is low, that you know, if you actually do work your butt off and try to help founders, you can actually carve off real value and and make an impression, and and that that should help you. Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over a hundred million dollars in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. Um, Gabriel, do you want to come and ask your question? Sure. What are a few of your proudest moments as an angel and why? Uh, I don't know, is the honest answer. Um, you know, I think there's a handful of companies that I've helped really deeply. And there's a handful of companies that I helped, but, you know, they would have succeeded with or without me. 
Um, there's a bunch of companies who failed, you know, with or without me. Um, so I, I don't know if there's like a single proudest moment. I think, um, you know, there have been times where, um, I'll give you an example. I backed a team recently and uh, I went to drinks with the founders and one of them afterwards, and he was a little bit drunk, you know, um, came up to me and he said, hey, like, you know, I come from a very poor background, um, you know, getting backed by you really made a difference. My family looked it up and read about you and they felt like what I was doing made sense. And it really made a big difference to my family. So, you know, thanks for backing us. I don't know if this company will work or not, right? But that was a very nice moment um, because he felt that it gave him enough credibility with his family who came from very little means that they they weren't as worried anymore about his life, you know? That's a beautiful answer. I may throw in another one. Go for it. Um, like, what are your thoughts on how 23 might unfold for at least early stage tech I mean, we all, nobody's good at forecasting, but. Sure. Yeah, I think um, mid-stage and late-stage, which is not your question, is going to be brutal for most companies, not all, but for many. Um, so I think we're going to see lots and lots and lots of um, very busy investors dealing with companies failing, trying to pull together rounds, the third, the second, third, fourth rounds of layoffs, the M&A, all that stuff, right? Um, because people really overbuilt and some companies should have exited two years ago and they kept going and now they have another $100 million that they burnt uh, along the way um, with you know a big team all of a sudden. Um, early stage isn't going to be impacted very much. You know, If you're five people, you don't need to raise that much money. Maybe Series A's, the valuations come down and the bar goes up. But then again, it's probably resetting to 2018 or 2019, not you know, 1980 or something, you know, 2018, 2019 were the most active venture years of all times besides during COVID, right? So it's, or maybe it resets to 2016. That was still a great time to start a company, right? And so 2012, amazing time to start a company. So I just think um, for early stage companies, it doesn't really matter that much. You're going to have to show more progress and less money. You're going to have to be more disciplined about not overhiring. But honestly, you're just resetting a couple years in time to when things were normal. You know, the, the 2018, 2019. So I don't think it'll matter. You just build some product, you find some customers. Uh, or maybe, you know what, the one way it may matter is um, if there's a recession, your customers may be slower to buy depending on your product. For some products, it may be faster. Uh, and that may just mean that your revenue takes a little bit longer to accumulate and therefore you should be more cautious about spending. But other than that, it doesn't matter. Thanks, Thanks. Gilad. Thank you. Mateo, why don't you come up and ask your question? Sure. So there was a lot of, like, there was really like no venture capital in LATAM even like six years ago, like in, in dollar terms is very little. And then a lot of money came in, although that was heavily on the back of SoftBank and Tiger. Although other people, Andreessen, Lightspeed, uh, Sequoia started to dip their toes into the water. The companies here, especially post-Series A, are really dependent on USVC. I don't know if SB, if SoftBank and Tiger are going to come back, and the remaining people yeah. maybe they've done like ten investments, you know, maybe a little bit more, but there aren't too many who've done more than like ten. What do you think it's going to take for those people who are just dipping their toes in the LATAM waters to look at LATAM again and help us lead yeah. lead these Series B, Series C rounds, in the absence of the the usual suspects, which 
you know, before we're SoftBank and Tiger. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I am by no means a LATAM expert, right? Um, so my my comments will not be specific to LATAM. They'll be a little bit broader. And, you know, my, my general viewpoint is that in times of up markets and potentially excess, people start doing a lot of things that they wouldn't do in a down market simply because they become more focused. There's opportunity cost to capital. A lot of things shift. They're not fighting everybody for everything. Um, at the same time, there's companies in LATAM that have grown really nicely over the last decade or two, Mercado Libre or things like Rappi or, you know, there's a variety of different companies. And so that shows people that they can invest in the region and have good exits or good outcomes, right? And so I know like, um, I thought Excel started doing more stuff in like Brazil and maybe Mexico for a while. You know, there's a couple of different firms that started doing more stuff, uh, even before all this stuff, right? Like Kevin Ifrusi, I think was doing things as well. Um, but I do think there will, there will be a period of retrenchment for everything, right? Every sector and every part of the world will see things slow down in terms of the velocity of money and deployment and investment. But if you have good core metrics and you're growing at a good clip, you should be able to find capital to, to support it in the US. Um, but if your metrics are so-so, you're increasingly unlikely to get funded anywhere. And if you're outside of the US, it's going to be much harder than if you're in the US. The hard thing is sometimes the so-so companies become spectacular. Uh, but on average, the companies in, in, in that I've been involved with that have worked have tended to work pretty fast. There's kind of a myth of if you grind for seven years, eventually it should work. And I think that's kind of a really bad thing to tell people because it's not usually true. Usually if you grind for three, four years and nothing's working, it never works. And depending on your market, it may be faster than that. And so I think you can usually tell pretty quick if the thing's going to work. And I, again, that's not conventional wisdom in startups, right? The advice is always just keep going no matter what. And for a year or two, maybe three, that's true. <laughs> but after that, I think it becomes decreasingly true. Mateo, if I can add to your question too, I think that uh, one one kind of additional thought is that despite not having a lot of local capital, I mean, local funds have raised now multi-billion dollar funds, right? That didn't exist before. And so, you know, you look at Kazakh, Monashis, Valor, you know, these are all multi-billion dollar funds now. And so I think that the um, kind of validation of like a Dreesen, a Sequoia, or, or, you know, an international investor coming down Excel and being active also kind of open the door up for LPs to start investing locally. And then that I think will, you know, sustain, you know, a little bit more. And if you look at the actual capital being deployed, the number of deals, uh, it's actually majority of the deals, maybe not at series B and C, but at A are, are local firms. So just as a, as a side note, um, Tommy, come on up here and ask your question. Sure. Thanks Elad, for, for the time. It's a quick follow-up question. So as an angel, right, you just said you, you're not an expert in Latin, but from that perspective how do you look at latin america or other emerging markets do you think the these are markets where you could find more alpha because of you know maybe enterprises being lower or do you think that or or would you not even rather like spend time trying to get into them because you feel, you think that the risk reward profile is just uh it doesn't it doesn't make sense for, for you right i just curious to to see how a us based angel thinks around that yeah i think it really depends on who it is right because um Some U.S.-based angels are very happy to invest in Latin America. You know, a good example would be Sarab at DST does a lot of personal investing in, in Latin America. Um, and so it's very person-specific. I think as somebody um, who, you know, if I look at it, almost all my investments were in the U.S. 
And within the US, roughly all my investments were in two cities. So it's not even about LATAM. It's about in the, in the US, I don't invest in you know, 99% of the country or something, right? Um, and so as an individual, I don't have very much time. And so I tend to be very focused, right? And I just, I just focus on a few networks that I know. And if I try to invest in Latin America, I would do a very bad job of it because I don't have local context. I don't know who's good or bad or full of shit, right? I don't know who's going to bullshit me. Um, I don't know the local needs if you're selling into the market. I don't understand it well. So, um, you know, I'd be the, the fool, you know, showing up. And so I prefer not to be foolish if I can avoid it. And so it has nothing to do with whether it's an opportunity or not. I just don't have the ability to assess whether it's good or not. And so therefore I tend to avoid it. And we talked about that earlier in the context of markets. If it's an oil rig, software, I have no idea. I'm not going to do it. You know, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. And so I shouldn't do it. And that, again, I'm different from other people that way. Thank you. Makes sense. Yeah. The next question is uh, anonymous and it's, it's really around exits. And how do you think about exits as an angel? When, when, when is the right time to exit? Um, you know, what's your philosophy? And maybe that's changed over time as you've, you know, had some exits and then you maybe not needed to exit. So what's, what's your current philosophy or how's your philosophy developed over time? And what is your philosophy today? Yeah, I don't think it's changed much. Um, you know, I exited my first company quite early, you know, two years in or two and a half years in, cause I thought it wasn't working that very well, uh, in part. And then in part, I thought it'd be a, a much bigger opportunity in the hands of a company like Twitter, which bought us, um, uh, and I also thought the team would do well there and have great careers. And, you know, there's three or four things I thought would have bigger impact because we, we had a developer platform that in our hands wasn't going to ever be huge, but in Twitter's hands could be very large, we thought at the time. So, so we sold for a few different, um, for a few different reasons. Um, and in general, I think if you sell early, you should sell to a company that you think will grow a lot for two reasons. One is, um, you know, I'm making up a number. Uh, $10 million exit if the company 10X is a $100 million exit, right? And so it's way better to, to, to sell to somebody who's growing themselves. And before valuations went crazy during COVID, it was easier to get that upside if you sold to the right company. But then also career-wise, it's much better because technology circles are very small and tight-knit and the same people work together over and over and over again, which means if you sell to the right company, you end up knowing some amazing people and then you become an angel in their next company, or they become an angel in your next company, or you help each other start something or whatever it is. And so the small networks really matter. And so who you sell to matters a lot. If you can, if you can control it, you know, otherwise you can just sell if you need to. Um, the reasons to sell, there's usually four or five reasons. Uh, number one is your thing isn't working and you're running out of money. Uh, reason number two is you see a competitor that you're really scared of legitimately coming. And you should exit before they crush you and why you can still get a good outcome. Reason three is you're tired. You're just exhausted. You can't do it anymore. You can't think about it. You don't know who to bring in instead of yourself, et cetera, right? Or maybe you can't find anybody to bring in. Um, reason number four is somebody pays you so far ahead that how could you not take that deal, right? You're going to dilute a lot. Um, you're going to work on it for seven years further and you'll end up at the same space. Why not just take the exit, right? So there's a financial driver. And sometimes it's just like the impact. Uh, you know what? In the hands of somebody else, this will do much more. I think those are multiple reasons people sell, you know? What about from the perspective of an angel investor uh, around, you know, you exiting those investments? Do you wait till the very last moment till it's, 
you know, going to be public? Do you sell in subsequent rounds? Is it just based on price? Is it, what's your, your general philosophy as an investor? Yeah, um, I think it kind of depends on your context because if you selling would really offend the founder, um, it, that may or may not matter to you. And it really depends on your relationship to them, what you think will happen with the company, how important the money is to you. If the founder doesn't care and that comes out of it, then um, there's a few different, very different philosophies which just de-risk over time. And maybe you sell half of it or maybe you sell a third of it and you just take money out because you need the money or it'll just um, help provide security. Um, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Or maybe you sell all of it, right? I've seen people sell out entire angel positions and things that are working. The other side of it is, um, you know, the way re really large amounts of money is made is being concentrated, usually. And so imagine if you sold out of Facebook at 500 million and then it eventually hit 300 billion, right? So you lost almost a th another 1,000x, right? So a 1,000x on a million dollars is a lot, <laughs> right? And so it kind of depends, um, but you can never really predict that. And so usually maybe the smart thing to do is you sell down over time. But again, you have to start to ask, when is it... Um, when when is the potential upside of that money in that company worse than what you could do otherwise with the money if you took it out? Unless again you need it for security or diversification or you need to buy a house or whatever it is. That makes sense. I'll read the question. It says uh says I see a lot of back and forth about early stage companies with product market fit in relation to sales hiring. Do you like to see companies that have one or two sales reps before hiring ahead of sales? This will come once the founders have been selling the product and our service successfully. You know, I think it depends on um, how successful that they've been doing it successfully is. So um, I think it really varies by, um, I think it varies by um, the, the, the sort of magnitude of revenue and all the rest. I don't always think you should just hire one or two salespeople. I think sometimes it's good to bring on a head of sales early, but I think it's very contextual. So I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on it. Yeah, I think the bottom line is that as a founder, you should definitely be talking to your customers like obsessively. Um, you know, yeah, if you hire a head of sales, you're still going to hopefully talk to your customers. Otherwise, you're not doing your job, right? So I kind of feel like people misinterpret what it means to bring on a head of sales. Yeah, how senior that person has to be at what stage of company and on the business. And also I'll give you an example. Like if you were Airtable or DBT, you actually got a lot of users before you started monetizing. And so you had lots and lots and lots of customers, but then you turned it on and started harvesting. So in situations like that, it may make sense to front load ahead of sales because you're going to go and make lots of money really fast. And you want to put in place a strong process, right? Um, and so it, it's very contextual. You know, I think the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice. Hmm. Right. It all depends on the context and what's happening and what's going on. And so I can give you something that works 80% of the time, but then 20% of the time people say, oh, well, you gave me terrible advice. And you're like, well, it wasn't meant for you. It was meant for a different context. I, I should say, by the way, most technical and product-driven founders hire sales too late in any form. Why do you think that is? Because they don't take it seriously in terms of a discipline sometimes. Yeah. Or, you know, they think, oh, it'll change our culture. Yeah. You know, Three or four reasons. I wrote a blog post on this once. Um, I think it's called like fear of sales or something. 
And it's like, we're worried about the culture. Do we really need these people? It's, it's not a science, it's an art, but really it's, it's years of process engineering, right? Is how you do enterprise sales, for example. So it's actually very well defined how, how to do it and what works and doesn't work. Uh, Marcial just popped it into the chat. If anyone wants to read the the post, thank you, Marcial. Yeah, it's something that I think is uh, particularly in kind of engineering, you know, product engineering circles. Sometimes it's, it's something that's seen as kind of it's looked down upon sometimes in some startups. And I think that's a mistake because you know you do really need to kind of get things going. Like it's something that yeah. You know, so People always say, uh, oh, look at Atlassian, and you're like, okay, you named one company. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's exception that proves a rule. There's there's thousands of companies that build out sales teams that work. Yeah. So. No, that that's 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 true. Ricardo, do you want to ask your question? Um, you know, I know that yeah. Go ahead go ahead and come uh, super on quick. Like uh on your experience, what are the basic mistakes that uh entrepreneurs make when sharing their uh data room for series A to investors? Oh uh it's a good question. Um, you know, I'll give you um, two opposing mistakes. You know, on the one hand, and it depends on what you mean by data room. Is it just some slides that you're sending around or is it the full data room? Um, you know, on the one hand, sometimes people don't put enough information in because they're paranoid that information will leak to competitors. Um, and so, you know, they're concerned that things will circulate and people will discover something that they discovered and copy them and go after it. Uh, and every once in a while, that's actually correct, right? It's, I don't think it's an unfounded fear, but I think 95% of the time it's unfounded. Um, uh, and then I think sometimes people are too sparse on information or details that matter, or they're lacking sections that are really important, like financials or some form of plan, you know? Um, you know, for, for the COVID era, like plans kind of went out the window and people just raise money on a, you know, two-page notion doc or whatever. Um, and so I think sometimes that lack of thinking also impacts the founder in a negative way because they don't have the opportunity to really think through their business deeply. Awesome. Man, for sharing. Good luck on your raise, Ricardo, too. Marcia, I'll come up and ask your question. I, I, I like your question here. Hey, thank you, Ilad, for the time. But my question is, what areas of your professional life do you want to improve on? We look at you from kind of behind in the journey, but I'm curious, what are you intentional about improving? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, fundamentally, uh, the thing I'm, uh, that, that kind of drives me is, I, you know, I've always been kind of a techno-optimist. I think technology is largely a force for good in the world, and it's, you know, helped raise hundreds of millions of people out of um, uh, despair in one form or another. And, um, you know, I want to be involved with the most important technologies and some of the most important technology companies over time, right? So that's kind of the driver on my side. Um, and then I think that substantiates in different ways over time, but that, that's kind of what I care about. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, like everyone, I want to do better time management and I want to get leverage on time and, you know, all the standard things that I think everybody likes. Um, I think also over your career, you have a big shift in mindset and you sometimes have to correct yourself on those things. And that could be, the difference between somebody who's managing people and not and used to managing people, right? You learn to delegate and you learn to deal with people's emotional states and all the rest of it in different ways. Uh, but similarly, early in your career, there's a really good reward system in some sense for saying yes to everything. Yes, I'll help my friend start up. Yes, I'll help this other person. Yes, I'll help this person with their job search, whatever it is. And that usually ends up paying itself back over time in a pretty deep way that you don't necessarily anticipate early in your career. 
late in your career, you have to learn to say no to everything. No, I won't do this extra podcast. No, I won't, you know, take this meeting. No, I won't, you know, be able to help this person because suddenly you're extremely limited on time. When before, when you're younger, you tend to have a lot. And so I think that mind shift is very important um, uh, for people. My co-founder, if she's still on, Gina, her word for the year is no. <laughs> I guess that means she's later in her career. Um, no, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I feel bad. I like I want to help everybody, but then I just decided this year I say no. But a lot. I'm a really good person. Please, please believe that. Normally, <laughs> I, I help. Yeah, and I think um, people also the later you are in your career, take advantage of your time in ways that is inappropriate that they wouldn't do to somebody earlier. They'll get on the phone with you and they'll just be like, "Hi," and you're like. You know, it's it's not a use. It's not useful for anyone. Thank you. First of all, thank you for not saying no to to my ask for you to to you know to join us here. That's the the first uh, point I want to make before before we uh, wrap it up. But I would just love to hear if you could kind of you know summarize a few things. If you if you kind of go back and you you think back to those early days when you just started investing, you know, if you were to synthesize kind of the one thing that you think you did really well that you know, sticks out and that might be applicable to people on this call. Like what would be the one thing that, you know, that you did that was, you're happy that you did it. Um, and it can't be say yes. You know, I think fundamentally um, the best thing to do earlier in your, early in your career is to um, either start a company and take various reasons, you know, your, uh, your family needs help or somebody gets sick or there's, there's always something. Right. And so um you know, being able to take a few shots on goal early tends to help. And in general, I look at people who dropped out of school, for example, and for the ones who have interesting careers, they add another decade to their career, right? Because if you drop out at 19 and you go start your first company, um, you know, you may have saved four to eight years relative to other people, maybe more than that, right? In terms of trying. And then you can always go and get the big company job or go back to school, depending on your school or things like that. Um, and so you have this extra span of time if you're very motivated and driven to do something like that. Uh, so I think the first thing is early in your career, it's both good to take risk, but if you're not taking risk, then the best thing to do is to go to a breakout company. And it's a company that's clearly working. It's in the tens to low hundreds of people. And um, there's growth opportunities everywhere. There's a great network of people everywhere. And joining the right network early and the right platform early makes a huge difference. It really accelerates people's careers. Um, so I think that's a very important thing. And for me, that was joining Google, right? It was, um, uh, it, it was sort of the right thing to do in that moment. And it really, I think helped accelerate me because I got to know a large network of people who eventually ended up going and doing all sorts of interesting things. I got to work on really interesting projects at scale. I got to start new things. And I think that really helped me when I started a company. Tongue in cheek, Tommy asked if great advice. He said, "If have you ever invested in any time travel startups?" Uh, apparently, uh, he he wishes he had that advice um, uh, back when he started. Listen, uh, you know, just to wrap up here, super appreciative of your time, your willingness to share your experience, and I, I have one last question for you. Have you read the 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 Latam Tech Report? Have you seen it? No, but again, it's, it's back to. Spending time on um, things that you need to spend time on. So I'm unfortunately very crushed on. Uh, okay. okay, that's all right. It's all right. I'm going to send it to you anyway. And if you are on a long flight, you know, across the Atlantic, maybe you'll you'll peruse through it. But it'll give you less of an excuse to not, you know, I know that LATAM is not your focus, but we would love to have you down occasionally and, and you know, have you 
a little more exposure to the region. Hopefully we can close the gap in terms of uh, what's happening because there's some exciting stuff and and we would love to share it with you. So, but thank you for sharing your knowledge with us and uh, your experience. And we're really, we're really grateful for that. Yeah, thanks, for the time. thanks so much for including me. So gratitude. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Almost let them. See you next week.